So uh, we are going to do something a little bit different with the service today. Right after the morning service, we'll have our uh, um, celebration, and uh, in lieu of our adult Bible class, we'll we'll uh, gather together and eat uh, uh, American hot dogs. And uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you want to think of them as tube steaks, whatever tickles your fancy. This morning we have a unique situation. I didn't get the sermon from last week finished. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's kind of strange because as I was outlining the book roughly, um, and I emphasize towards the end of the book, it, the outline was rough. <laughs> um, I thought this division is going to be difficult to fill a sermon um, in this last part of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Um, and then it turned into two sermons. So I'm <laughs> not sure, sure what God had in mind. I think sometimes he just likes to humble me. Um, and I, uh, So I didn't get the sermon finished last week. And then today's a special day where I would normally um, preach a sermon uh, on our God Bless America Sunday that uh, is themed to that end. And um, looking at the truths of the passage we were in last week, I see some clear application to the subject matter that we normally cover on our Patriotic Sunday. So our plan is to finish last week's sermon with perhaps some new application of the truths that are integral to the text. So, we began last week, and it was in part what took up much of our preaching time explaining the context of Paul's teaching in the passage. So, with just a nod to that context, uh, we'll focus primarily on the content of the text this morning and see how these truths impact us today. So, here's the nod to the context. We noted last week, that Paul is addressing an issue that was rising in the first century church, an overstep of authority among some who had misplaced values. Um, Some had thought and had sought to pervert God's design for the institution of the church, and had sought to stretch their authority over multiple churches in a region. This was against God's design for the church. And it would, it would behoove us to remember the design of the institutions to which God has granted authority on this earth. There's only three. And all authority must be derived from these three institutions and must stay within the parameters of God's design. The first institution by God's design is that of the family. And the family's authority extends to the edges of its own household and specifically applies to the mission that God has given the family to raise godly children. That's the first institution and and the foundational one upon which all society rests. The second institution is that of civil government. 
civil government must also remain within its designed parameters, lest it tromp over the other two institutions and violate the rights or assume the responsibilities of the individual. And I'll take a moment to comment that to violate an individual's rights or assume their responsibilities is one and the same thing. The, the authority of government extends to the edges of its national borders and must be characterized by its primary mission. So what is that? What is the primary mission of civil government? To protect the people. It is to wield the sword in protection of the people. And, and so we will come back to that in just a moment because of our theme today. Um, but let's quickly touch on that last institution and the one which Paul addresses here. The third institution that God has founded and given authority on this earth is that of the church. And its mission is to preach the gospel. The authority of the church must be exercised in that realm only. And the extent of that authority, this is very important, and this is, what's, this is what is related to the context of our passage, it's very important that the extent of the authority of the church is limited to the local congregation only. Paul is addressing an overstep by some men who would stretch their authority beyond God's design and create antithetically a universal authority structure that would dictate to and control other congregations. It was a power grab. When an institution exercises authority beyond its designed parameters, it throws off the entire societal system. And this is especially true of the institution of government. Because unlike other institutions, that of the family and that of the church, the government carries a sword. And with it, the threat of death to anyone who might challenge the authority that it has usurped. So you can see how when government oversteps its design parameters, it's a big deal. Governments have not maintained their place in society per the design of God. As a matter of fact, we have examples of overstepped authority in the development of society on this continent. When European settlers began to come to these shores, even early on, attempts to rebel against God's intent for government were implemented here. Some smaller colonies fell for the lies of socialism, in which the government took from the rich and gave to the poor. Very quickly, those became the poorest and failed colonies on this continent. The written reports of the governors of those colonies give testament to the allure of socialism and its inevitable failure. And that's the result of stepping outside of God's design for government. 
We think of America as a place of religious freedom, don't we? But this was not always the case. Did you know that? America was not always characterized by religious freedom. Local governments overstepped their powers by demanding that all their subjects only attend church of, of a certain denomination. And this infringement on the personal freedoms of the individual was what people were used to. You know, people tend to do what they're used to doing, right? And that was the case in the early years of our government. It was the character of the nations from which the settlers had emigrated. And that was a great danger in the formation of America. We, we often hear that we are a nation of immigrants, and we are, right? And that does lend to the, uh, the flavor of America, doesn't it? I mean, there's a diversity here that is unique. But there comes with that some certain problems. It was, it was early on noticed in, in, our, in our society. People were leaving their home countries because they were unhappy there. Right? They're like, this place is not, is not good for me and my family, so we're leaving. And they came from countries that persecuted them for what they believed and how they worshipped. And they left those oppressive places and they came to America to form colonies in which only their brand of religion was allowed. Right? We see now and we recognize that they had merely traded places with the oppressors. <laughs> but, but in their defense, it, it was all they knew. Also, there was no example or standard of government that they could model. It's what the world had gone to. Governments that overstepped their design parameters. Then there was a colony that was started in Rhode Island that was a Baptist colony. You know, all the colonies had a religious stamp on them. Their founders were of a particular religion, whether they be Congregationalist or Catholic or um, Lutheran or Presbyterian. Um, these, these colonies were characterized by that particular religion. Well, the Baptist colony was started by Baptists. That was a different type of government because the Baptists who led the colony believed in a doctrine that we call individual soul liberty. And they believed that people should be free to worship as their conscience dictated. And that was unique. You could be in the Baptist colony in Rhode Island and not be a Baptist and not get a ticket for not going to church on Sunday. Now, I mean, I totally recognize the uh, allure of ticketing people for not being in church on Sundays, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, as a pastor of a Baptist church, I'm thinking, well, that ought to work. <laughs> Give them a ticket. At least we'll get their offering, you know? <laughs> no, I... Uh, <laughs> That goes against, I take all that back. That goes against 
<laughs> the, the clear Baptist distinctive of individual soul liberty. They believed that people should be free to worship as their conscience dictated. And this was unique. It was, and it was wholly submitted to the design that God had for government. When the American government was formed, it drew deeply from the principles of the Baptist colony, and it drew up amendments in our Constitution that guaranteed limitations to government. They realized a good government is a small, limited government. And they drew up limitations to government. That was, the, that was what characterized American government was that in its original design, it was not, it was not meant to get bigger. It was, it was drawn up with limitations. They recognized in the Constitution, in these amendments, they, they, they didn't grant rights to the people from the government. They didn't say, ah, well... We're going to give you these rights and see how you do with them. No, that's not, that's not what the Constitution does. It, it recognizes God-given rights and limits the government from ever overstepping the parameters of God's design. The Constitution is the supreme rule of our land. It is, as I've noted before, the longest standing constitution in the history of the world. It's not a living, breathing document that is easily changed or meant to be interpreted differently as time moves on. It is the firm and unchanging rule under which our government operates. And while the Declaration of Independence, as I wrote in the bulletin, is the birth certificate, if you will, the founding document of our country, the Constitution is, is our governing document. And these documents are the basis for God's long-standing blessings upon our nation. And when we hold a special day like this and give thanks for the greatness to which our country has aspired, we do so in recognition of the God without whose blessings we could never have reached any greatness at all. We also recognize in these troubled times that it is God who made America great. And God who can return her to that blessed state. We do not look to Washington for the salvation of our country. As a matter of fact, I shouldn't go off my notes. We, we, <laughs> we look to the one who holds king's hearts in his hand. We look to the God who historically has done great things with even wicked kings. Let us embrace his rule in our lives. And let's do so by welcoming those principles by which he intended nations to operate. And that's what God Bless America Sunday is all about. Focusing on things that matter. Things that matter to God.
And that brings us back to our text and the theme therein. The Apostle Paul was pointing out what does and doesn't matter. And if we could refocus our eyes and see what matters, if we could redirect our energies and leave those things that matter not at all and invest in what matters, we might attain the peace and the fulfillment that God intends for us and in which God intends for us to live. Last week we covered three things that don't matter. That sounded funny to say it that way. <laughs> That's last week's sermon. That was our. We just had three points that don't matter, so don't worry about them. No. It, These are things that may seem to matter, but they are made-up math, all right? They don't actually calculate out in the end. They don't matter. Here they are. And yes, I recognize the irony of that. First of all, self-commendation doesn't matter. Self-commendation doesn't matter. We see that in, in verse 12 of our text. Actually, I haven't even read our text. Let's do that. Um, let's read our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read verses 12 through 18, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure. But according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the region beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that does, with almost marginal notes, list so clearly for us the things that don't matter and the things that do matter in our lives. Help us, Lord, to surrender to the truths that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. That we might live lives that matter. And invest in things that matter to you. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that they would make that life-changing decision today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in uh, the first part of verse 12 is self-commendation doesn't matter. Um. I won't park on these first three points too long um, because, well, for one, they don't matter. But two, because we spent we spent all week on them last week. This 
This speaks to the need to constantly affirm oneself, either to oneself or to others. And you know what? It's meaningless. You have, think about this, I'll just remind you, you have the least perspective on yourself. You realize that? You have the least perspective on yourself, especially without the mirror of God's Word. You have the least perspective on yourself. And, on top of that, you have the greatest bias. And think about it. You are either, you, you either recognize yourself as your greatest hero or your worst enemy, depending on what time of day it is. Right? You have the least perspective and the greatest bias. Whatever you say about yourself should be discounted on mere suspicion of inaccuracy. <laughs> Self-commendation doesn't matter. And Paul says in, in verse 12, he says, I am not going to join that crowd. I'm not going to um, <laughs> lift myself up and act like I'm more than I am. Or try to pretend that I'm something I'm not. Okay, we move on to the second part of verse 12 in which we see self-comparison doesn't matter. This is more than just standing in a room by yourself affirming your own loveliness. This is comparing yourself with others. You know, perhaps after seeing the failure of self-commendation, we might decide, well, what I need to do is compare myself with someone else to give me a little perspective. Well, look, your mind's working logically, all right, but there's still this great fault. Because besides the obvious lack of profit in that exercise and the damaging impact of it, Think again of how untrustworthy it is. I mean, first of all, what's the conclusion you're going to, at which you are going to arrive? That you're better than someone else or that you are worse than someone else? Why would I want to arrive at one of those conclusions? On the other hand, think of how untrustworthy that is. Why would you drag someone else into the equation at all? Why? Well, I mean, to make yourself feel better, right? So you've already arrived at a conclusion. <laughs> that conclusion may be that you're wonderful or that you are deplorable. But you've already arrived there. You're just bringing someone else in for proof. Perhaps you find greater comfort in the low standard of self-hate. And, and you know me and my personality. I tend to, to jump on... Um, self-commendation constantly and say, you know, you shouldn't, you know, inflate your own ego and all that. But let's face it, self-hate is just as bad. It's practically the same sin. I mean, don't act like it's humble to hate yourself. To hate yourself is to set low standards for yourself. Standards that are easy to meet. Self-hate comes from the same bad perspective as self-love. It comes from self-comparison. And once again, it doesn't matter. One more 
from last week. Oh, that, that's great. I spent half the time on last week's review. <laughs> self-promotion doesn't matter. Verse 13, we see self-promotion doesn't matter. This speaks to the practice. i got to talk faster. This speaks to the practice of promoting one's self into a position of authority. I said last week, it's like adding bars to your shoulder and thinking you're a general, right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way when people do it. It doesn't work that way when governments do it. A government may prohibit the worship of God, but it doesn't matter. We're going to worship God uh, the way he commands us to worship him. Governments may prohibit a family from raising its children to the way God has, uh, in the way God's commanded, but it doesn't matter. We're going to raise our children as we always have because God gave parents the responsibility and authority, not government. Self-promotion doesn't matter. It doesn't constitute real authority. And it doesn't work individually either. All authority is God's authority. So be careful in your exercise of it. And when it's not been granted to you, don't usurp it. It's God's. You're stealing from God to usurp usurp authority. Soup is later. Self-promotion doesn't matter. Now we move on to new material, and we've got 15 minutes to do so, and I think I've only got six pages of notes. So, the, uh, here's, the, here's, the last, here's the last point that we just opened last week, but we didn't actually cover it. The preaching of the gospel matters. You can see it in verses 14 through 16. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but have, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. You can see here that the preaching of the gospel, it's the planting stage. And without it, there isn't a harvest. The preaching of the gospel sows the seeds so that fruit might be born. The preaching of the gospel is the investment without which no return can be expected. The preaching of the gospel is what put Paul into the position of authority in Corinth in the first place, is the argument that he's making in the passage we've just read. You may not see the fruit of the gospel when you preach it. But you can be sure that without it, no souls will be rescued from hell. It was the preaching of the gospel that paved the way for the Christian church to be built. No lives will be surrendered to Christ without the preaching of the gospel. No mansions in heaven will be filled without the preaching of the gospel. No crowns will be laid at the feet of Christ without the preaching of the gospel. And no church will be built or altar filled until the gospel is preached. Gospel preaching matters. And you may say, oh, preaching, all right, well, that's for Pastor Josh. You realize what preaching is. It's delivering a, a truth. It's teaching somebody something that's true. And then it's challenging them to make a decision on what they've heard. 
And that's not limited to tie-wearing guys that stand behind a pulpit and wave their arm and yell. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, preaching is everyone's responsibility. Gospel preaching matters. Our text shows that Paul has great hopes for the cause of Christ. Not only in Corinth, but in the regions beyond Corinth. Beloved, that's the nature of the gospel. Do you realize that the gospel is not meant to be penned up, held close, or closeted? It's meant to be shared first where you are, and then to that area within your reach, and ultimately to the entire world. Remember how Jesus commanded the Jerusalem church? In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Beloved, this is what matters. The propagation of the gospel matters. It matters to the lost. Paul makes this clear in a series of rhetorical questions in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 14, he asks this question. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? What's the answer? They won't. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And the answer is, they won't. And how shall they hear without a preacher? They won't. And how shall they preach except they be sent? They won't. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The preaching of the gospel matters. You could invest your life in no greater cause. You could spend your fortune on no greater achievement. You could expend your energy on no greater accomplishment than the preaching of the gospel. You could build mansions on earth, but that pales in comparisons to filling mansions in heaven. You could fight honorably in battle, but you could win no greater war than that war for the soul of a man or a woman. You could see the world, but your time would be better spent winning the world. You could live comfortably, But let it not be at the expense of someone else's eternal rest. The preaching of the gospel matters. And almost anything held up against it, in contrast, pales in comparison. I ask you then, are you doing what matters? Now we move to the next point, and it can be seen in verses 15 and 16. Let's read verses 15 and 16 again. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying here? Something that we can derive from his notes Credit for ministry doesn't matter. All right? Credit for ministry doesn't matter. 
There were some who sought to take the credit for Paul's work. Some even accused Paul of taking the credit for their work. You know what Paul said? None of that matters. He had no interest in building on other men's foundations or reaping rewards sowed by another. He was content just to get the gospel out. In another place, Paul points out that all that ever comes of ministry is the work of God anyway. Who cares if I get any credit from my work? In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, who, who then is Paul, he says, and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I've planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now I'm not saying that my feelings don't get hurt sometimes. Sometimes I see other men building on a foundation that I have laid. And my initial reaction is fleshly. I know this is such a surprise for you. <laughs> I think he doesn't deserve the privilege of building on my foundation. And then I hear my own thoughts and I scold myself. Yes, I might be a little schizophrenic. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't deserve the privilege of laying any foundations. I have no right to lay claim to converts. I'm just privileged to serve in whatever capacity God allows me. And if another man gets credit on this earth for something that I have done, I just mark it up as an apparent wrong that will be righted in heaven. That just gives me one more reason to look forward to heaven. On the other hand, my perspective is so limited on this earth, I might just be wrong myself. (laughs) That happens on occasion. Like twice this year now. (laughs) I place the allure for a claim in the amazing hands of the Almighty. I know that was unnecessary, but it came out that way. All ministry work is His work. All successes are His successes. And I will labor in, in obscurity if need be, so long as God gets the glory. Take that principle and apply it to anything that you do for the Lord. Anything. Think about that. You know you serve God. You know, I I love to give accolades to you when you work around here. I do. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful for all that you do. Let me tell you about a little struggle I have in that regard to help you understand my position. I'm so grateful for the way that so many of you pitch in and help that I'm motivated to mention you from the pulpit. I am. I mean, I just I feel like, oh, I've got to say something. I want to thank everyone in the church. And I, I want everyone in the church to know what, what you've done. And that wouldn't be wrong. I mean, I, I know that some of you would appreciate it, and, and rightly so. And then I think about how that uh, will feel to the person I don't mention. Someone who's helping in another area. And my first impulse then was, okay, well, I'll make sure I get them all. And so I start writing a list. 
I mean, I kid you not. I have done this many times. I've done it recently even. I start writing a list of people for whom I'm thankful because I plan on mentioning them from the pulpit. Um, Some of them bring people to church. Some of them clean the church. Some of them work so hard on the music. Some bring goodies for everyone. Some teach. Some are just available, and that means so much. Even now... I fear I might have missed out on some great contribution in that short, abbreviated list of things that people do. Right? I start writing that list, and I always end up the same way. I can't do this. And I delete the list, and then I don't name anyone as I had intended. Why? I just don't want to leave someone out, so I I don't name anyone. So if you've served in any capacity, and I have failed to thank you recently, and, and if I have ever, if, if I have never uh, named you from the pulpit, know this, I have deleted you several times <laughs> from a list of people for whom I am incredibly grateful. But not only because I don't want to leave someone else out. Um, See, I I trust you know that your reward is in heaven. And will be even greater for having not been mentioned on earth. (laughs) I trust you understand what matters and what doesn't matter. And credit for ministry, it just doesn't matter. What does matter in this regard is revealed in verse 17. It is the glory of God that matters. If you look at verse 17, it says, But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. As we've been studying what matters and seek to arrange our lives to reflect the fruits of our studies, let me say this with absolute confidence. Nothing matters more than this. The glory of God matters. When, when the heavens were dark, shapeless masses, when time was no construct, before the foundations of the earth were laid, God was concerned with His glory. When the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters of His own making, God was concerned with His glory. What motivated Him to speak those worlds into Existence in six 24-hour days was his own glory. When God created man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, it was God's glory that was at stake. When God set in motion the redemption of mankind, it was his glory that concerned him. And when he patiently did forbear with mankind for thousands of years before the redemptive price was paid, it was for his glory that he did so. When Christ hung on the cross, the only efficacious price for man's sins, he did so for the glorification of God. And when the Father called down from the throne of heaven three days and three nights later and said, Arise, my son, he did so to his own great glory. And from the moment Christ ascended to the endless timeline of eternity, there is one thing that motivates his work at the right hand of the Father, and it is the glory of God. 
Every reward or punishment he has meted out has been for his glory. Every breath we breathe, every step we take, every accomplishment, everything we do should be for the glory of God. And that's what matters. And lest we ever assume that we are to be credited for something that we've done well in this life, in this body. We're reminded in our text and in many previous to it that all glory belongs to God. Jeremiah reminded us of this in Jeremiah 9.24, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. The Apostle Paul sought only God's glory and decried any possibility of glory in anything else. In his letter to the Galatians, he said in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. It was the theme of the psalmist and should be our own. In Psalm 105.3, Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. The glory of God matters. And we would do well to make it our life's ambition. Finally, we move to the last verse in our text and see one more thing that should matter to us. And it is the approval of God. The approval of God matters. Look at verse 18. It says, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. From this verse we see the full circle. From our warning against self-commendation to this last point. We can commend ourselves all day long. And may as well be standing on our head in the corner stacking BBs for all it matters. Because self-commendation doesn't matter. It's meaningless. But to gain God's approval matters. You will never lock down the approval of man. And I know the temptation of living for man's approval. I don't know about you, but I love it when people smile at me and say, Oh, I like what you did there. I mean, I have trouble keeping my buttons buttoned. Whoa, I'm so proud of myself. But you see, none of that really matters. Man is too fickle. Those same who were your number one fans yesterday will be your number one critics today. <laughs> Lavish praise. Lavish praise makes me very nervous because I know the consequences of taking any of it seriously. It's the approval of God that matters. The scriptures are replete with instructions to live in a way that meets the approval of God. And that should be our primary concern. To young Timothy, the apostle gave advice in this regard, 2 Timothy 2.15. He said, study. Why? To show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To study his word is an approved pastime 
Now that's a hobby, a passion that meets God's approval. And there are precious few of those. To the church meeting in the city of Rome, Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is an acceptable way to live our lives as a sacrifice for him. And now I, I realize this, that my acceptance into his presence is on the merit of Christ alone. And I could never hope to earn my place there. That is not what we're talking about. My everyday actions, my pastimes and my passions are works that will either meet his approval or fail to do so. And I only want to stand before him someday and hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. As you try to arrange your life by what matters, and as you seek to resist the temptation to live for the approval of people around you. Be sure that you are seeking his approval for how you live your life. Because that's what matters. So much of what we do in our lives just it really doesn't matter. It may seem like it does. It may even make us feel better for a while. But what really matters is the preaching of the gospel, the glory of God, and his smile on our life, his approval of what we do. You know, um, if you think, well, I'm going to work all my life and do the best I can, and that's what's going to earn me a place in heaven... You have miscalculated wildly. No one on earth has ever been good enough to earn a place in heaven. The only way you get there is by accepting the gift of Jesus Christ as your Savior so that he might dress you in his righteousness. And then you can begin a life that is characterized by things of which God is approving. You can live a life that matters. Look, if you've never um, embraced Jesus Christ as your only Savior, it's a one-time event. God speaks of it as a birth into his family. And if you've never done that, you can make that decision today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation And we're going to reaffirm our surrender to God. And if you'd like to know more about how to um, receive that gift of salvation, I would challenge you to come and sit in the front row while we sing the first stanza of I Surrender All. And then, child of God, perhaps as you look at your life, you say, you know what, I've been doing a lot of things that really don't matter. Why Why don't you start living a life that matters? I've been there. 
I know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know what that feels like. You know what's great? Doing something that matters. That's what's great. And it is a fulfilling thing indeed. Why don't you stand and sing with me? It's hymn number 308. If you're following along there, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for making it so.